The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. There is established medical evidence that some people with cancer, against the odds, have a spontaneous remission. But despite the evidence of this rare occurrence, today's guest, Dr. Kelly Turner, was shocked to learn that nobody was studying these cases of people who had recovered against all odds. Dr. Turner therefore focused her dissertation research at the University of California, Berkeley, in analyzing over a thousand cases of spontaneous or what she calls radical remission to see if there were any commonalities between these cases and if there were what we could learn from them. Dr. Kelly Turner is here today on Health Watch to talk about what she learned and about her new book, Radical Remission, Surviving Cancer Against All Odds. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Turner. Thanks for having me, Dr. Naiman. Happy to be here. So why don't we start out with your your personal story of, of how you became a remission researcher? Well, it started when I was counseling cancer patients about 10 years ago, um, and I got into that just because... Like most people, um, I've lost loved ones to cancer, and um, including a friend of mine when we were both 16. And so that's what sort of drew me into working with cancer patients in general. But that's all I was planning on doing, um, you know, being a psychotherapist and helping them with their emotional journey. So I did not expect to have my whole life turned upside down by one little case that I came across. But um, but that's what happened. I came across a case of radical remission where someone turned around their stage 4 kidney cancer after being sent home on hospice. And I remember just freezing and saying, did this really happen? And if it did happen, why is this the first time I'm hearing about it? <laughs> and that's when I you know, did some re- research on my own and found that there were thousands of these cases in the medical journals, but no one was talking about them, nor was anyone looking at them as a whole and trying to find um, find out what was really happening with these people. Well, it was interesting in reading reading the book that you've approached a lot of oncologists, so doctors who specialize in cancer, and all of them, without exception, have had at least one case of somebody with unexplained remission, but none of them end up writing up these cases and presenting them. Uh, what, what is that disconnect that's happening where they can all say, well, here's this case, we have no idea why this person got better, but they're not presenting it to the medical community? Well, you actually said the reason in your question, which is that they can't explain it. Um, like you said, every every oncologist I've met, um, I've asked, have you ever had one of these cases in your history? And they all say yes. And then I say, did you publish it in the medical journal? And they all say no. And the reason why, um, at least from what I can tell from talking to these oncologists, is that it's very hard to take the time that's needed to write up an article. And you probably know this. It takes about 40 hours of unpaid time. It's hard to do that when you can't even have a hypothesis to, to put in along with this case. You know, it takes a brave oncologist to, to write up a detailed medical, medical report and then say at the end, I have no idea why this happened. Um, it's, it, it's hard to do that. It's hard to study something you can't explain. Yet at the same time, you talk about the importance of not ignoring these anomalies and that, in fact, a lot of things, I think you mentioned penicillin and the x-ray and the pacemaker are results of scientists who have focused on these unexplained anomalies. Can you talk a little bit further about that? Yeah, definitely. This is my big mission. Um, Just because we can't explain something doesn't mean we shouldn't study it. That is my big uh, push behind researching these things because... 
we're only going to learn more about cancer if we start going into the places where we don't have it all figured out yet, right? Because we don't have cancer figured out yet. So to ignore somebody who's turned around their stage four cancer simply because we don't know how they did it, that's actually scientifically irresponsible, right? So um, a scientist is trained to study anomalies. So when you're coming up with a hypothesis, if something completely disagrees with your hypothesis and is way out there in left field, it's actually your scientific responsibility to figure out why. And like you said, um, some of science's most amazing discoveries in history have been because the scientists paused and said, wait a minute, what's going on here? And the best example of that, of course, is penicillin. And can you tell us a little bit about that story for our listeners who might not be familiar? It's a great story. It's a great story. Um, Dr. Fleming, back in the 20s or 30s, I think it was, um, he went on vacation and came back, and he was a, a biologist, and so he came back, and there was all these all this mold growing on his petri dishes, and that was typical. He expected that. Um, you know, he was sort of lazy, and he was known to be sort of a messy scientist, and so um, all of his colleagues were always teasing him about how he was always having dirty, moldy Petri dishes and stuff. So he came back, and he was tossing them out, and he was going to have to restart his experiment. And he just happened to pause and look at one of them more closely, and he noticed that one of them, yes, was covered with mold, but no longer had the bacteria in it. And that's when he decided to look into that further and look look at that mold under a microscope. And that mold is penicillin. That's what eventually became penicillin. So because he stopped and looked at it, He was about to chuck it in the garbage with the rest of the the dirty dishes uh, and restart his experiment. But because he stopped and looked and then investigated, you know, he led it led to one of the greatest discoveries of our time. So so tell us a little bit about how you've looked into these cases. What what has been your methodology of assembling and analyzing the data from a a variety of of people around the world who have, have beat the odds with their terminal cancers? Well, like I said, Dr. Neyman, the problem with the current research before I began um, studying this was that nobody could explain these cases, right? There were no hypotheses or potential explanations for why these people were getting better. And in science, you have to start with a hypothesis. That's sort of how the scientific method works. And so my first step was to try to come up with a hypothesis for why these people were healing. And who better to, to ask about why these people healed than the people themselves, because their doctors couldn't explain it, right? That's the definition of radical remission. It's medically inexplicable. So I went straight to the source. I went straight to these people who got well, and believe it or not, 99% of them told me, Dr. Turner, you're the first person to ask me how I got well. You're the first person, like, in a research capacity. And um, so I just asked them very open-ended. I said, what? What, why do you think you healed, and what did you do to get well? And then I just pressed record. So the kind of research that I do is very close to anthropo- anthropological research, well, like what an anthropologist would do. I ask an open-ended question, and I don't come in with any bias or any hypothesis. I just listen. And when you do that hundreds and hundreds of times with hundreds of subjects, you eventually see some common patterns and some common threads. And those are the nine hypotheses that um, are presented in my book. Well, let me play devil's advocate before we get into the details around around the book. Um, 
is it really the best person to ask the person who's had the recovery? I know we see all the time, for instance, people who vouch for a specific remedy or pharmaceutical medication that they still want, say a discontinued breast cancer medication or or even a, a prostate screening exam that they want because it makes them more comfortable even if the data from the science has shown that it's not the the right approach. So so what are your thoughts on how much to rely on on the narrative of the patient versus a controlled uh, research study, for instance? Well, a controlled research study is where, of course, we need to go next. But you can't do a controlled research study unless you know what you're trying to test. And so that is the rationale for starting at the ground, right? So the kind of research I do is called grounded theory. It's starting at the ground and letting the theories or the hypotheses come up from where the phenomenon is happening. And so, you know, I did ask some doctors. Um, I actually um, asked both traditional oncologists and then lots and lots of alternative cancer healers um, how they treat cancer and, and why they think it goes away. So I got I got their opinion as well. But no, I think it makes a lot of sense to talk to somebody who healed themselves because they're healing they're healing themselves after Western medicine has told them that that's all. There's nothing more they can do. Sure. So. We want to start with the people who've been turned away from medicine, really. Most of the people I study were sent home on hospice, so Western medicine had done all it can. And then to ask them, where did you go from there? What did you do? Um, I think that's a great place to start. But certainly, um, and I say this very clearly at the end of my book, um, I hope that um, scientists will now take these nine hypotheses and put them into controlled trials because they do need to be tested now um, in a controlled setting. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Health Watch, and we're talking today to Dr. Kelly Turner about her new book, Radical Remission, The Nine Key Factors That Can Make a Real Difference, Surviving Cancer Against All Odds. So, Dr. Turner, before we start talking uh, about some of these commonalities you found in the different cases, tell us about the ongoing uh, website database that you're forming to, to widen the pool of, of information that you have. Absolutely. Well, that website is RadicalRemission.com, and it is my attempt at trying to fix a very big problem, which is under-reporting. So these cases are, nobody knows how often they happen. It's a real problem. They are not tracked in the National Cancer Registry, which is how we get all the rest of our cancer statistics. And so we really don't know how often they're happening. And um, in addition, because we don't know how often they're happening, we, we don't know why they're happening, right? We can't, we can't investigate something if we don't hear about it. So at RadicalRemission.com, you can um, submit your Radical Remission healing story very quickly and easily. Um, and you can also search and find all, all the other stories that have been submitted. So it's a, hopefully a, a dual service. It's helping research, but it's also helping cancer patients um, you know, find inspiration of other people who have healed against all odds. So, for instance, could somebody listening who had pancreatic cancer, for instance, go on and, and search based on that type of cancer and find stories of what other people are doing? Yes, that is, that is the goal. That is the hope. Um, I'm a, I'm a one-woman uh, organization at the time, so I'm cu- currently transferring the 1,000 cases that I analyzed onto the site. So I'm not sure if we have the pancreatic one up yet, but that, um, we have a couple of those. One of them's chapter two of my book. Um, 
But, yes, the site, I'm transferring more and more every day, as fast as I can go with, uh, <laughs> with one woman and a five-month-old baby. <laughs> that sounds like a big challenge. So, yeah. so one, of the, one of the places you start is with diet, and you, and you say one of the commonalities you see with all of these uh, spontaneous remissions is a radical change of diet. And is that, I'm guessing that's not always the same radical change. But, so how do you deal with the changes that you're seeing different people make with their diet and coming up with some sort of theme? Well, that was, that was the hard part with the research is that you, I would see these similarities, but, of course, if you look closely, there's individual variation. And that's, of course, how it should be, right? Um, we all have very different individual genetic f- footprints and molecular footprints, and um, we do different things with our body, and we come into our health with different underlying conditions. So everybody's different. But there were some overall threads um, that I saw common in the diet change, and those were greatly increasing fruits and vegetables. So again, individually, some people really increased carrot juice, and other people really increased leafy greens, right? But on a whole, I can say that across the board, the people that I study greatly increased fruits and vegetables. They also, on a whole, um, greatly reduced or in some cases eliminated meat, wheat, sweets, and dairy products. And that was across the board. Now, some people went cold turkey and did none of those things. Other people just reduced them. Um, But that was definitely a commonality. And then the other two diet factors were drinking lots of filtered water and buying organic produce whenever possible. And there's definitely some research backing up some of these things. I know with alcohol intake and and vegetable intake are are correlated with breast cancer risk, for instance. Right. Are there other research studies that you can think of that back up some of the things you're seeing in behaviors in in these cases? Yeah, absolutely. In in my book, that was one of my big... um, attempts or that one of the things I really tried to do was make sure that um, I tried to tell the reader, is there any science currently behind these hypotheses or not? And for the, for the most part, there often was. So there's plenty of studies that show that reducing uh, meat intake, especially red meat, um, directly leads to longer survival time with cancer patients. Now, why that is, that's a little more up for debate, but certainly there have been some great large-scale controlled studies that show that reducing your meat intake um, will lengthen your survival time from cancer. And, and we don't know yet whether that's only factory farm meat or, or all meat. Exactly, exactly, which is why that fourth a- um, aspect of my research, which is buying organic, that applies not only to fruits and vegetables, but also to any meat or processed grains that you're eating um, you know, trying to make sure that things are antibiotic-free and free-range, grass-fed, all that good stuff. And is there any research on the, the wheat and dairy aspect of this, or is that something that we're just seeing in the cases that you're gathering but hasn't really, there's been not a lot of attention to it? There's actually been a lot of attention to that in general when it comes to health and tying that to inflammation. And then there are some studies that show that inf- inflammation in the body is more correlated with cancer. But this is sort of a relatively new idea scientifically, this idea of inflammation leading to disease. So it's going to take a couple more years for us to see studies that are designed specifically to look at does inflammation lead to higher cancer rates and does reducing inflammation lengthen cancer survival time. But certainly the research is out there that says inflammation um, hampers the immune system. 
And, and did you look at at exercise and types of exercise with regards to cancer? I know that isn't a category in and of itself in radical remission, but I'm guessing you must have seen uh, some commonalities around how much activity and types of activity. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up, Dr. Neiman, because it's it, it, when you look at the table of contents of my book, it's the one thing that's sort of missing from what you would normally think of as like a complete picture of health. And I bring this up in my conclusion. The people that I study, when I ask them, think back to when you were sent home on hospice, what did you do to heal? They didn't bring up exercise very much. And the reason why, in my, my guess, is that they couldn't exercise back then. You know, one, one example is this gentleman from Japan. He was sent home in a wheelchair on liquid nutrition. And so for him, just standing up, a month later was a feat, right? So he wasn't exercising because he was too sick to exercise. Um, but all of the people that I've studied exercise now. So what I take from that and the beautiful message that I get from my research is that even if you're too sick to walk right now, there is a path of healing that may be available to you, and down the road you will hopefully be able to exercise again. But we know there's study after study that shows that increased fruits and vegetables and exercise um, greatly increase your survival time from cancer. So exercise is very important. And going on to another one of the common things, is, which isn't surprising, a lot of these uh, patients are taking herbs and supplements as part of their regimen. Some of them are doing chemo and radiation and herbs and supplements. Depending on their cases, some might not be doing the chemo and radiation. So did you see a lot of commonality? I would think you would, I would imagine you would see stuff all over the board with herbs and supplements there's, since there's not really a standard of care when it comes to cancer treatment and, and all of the things that have been studied in small ways. Exactly. Yeah, it was all over the board. Everyone says, well, what did you find for herbs and supplements? What's that magic bullet? And my response is, I wish there were one. You know, I really wish that I had found one supplement that everyone was taking that, poof, made their cancer go away. But that's not what I found. Um, and that, again, harkens back to the idea that our bodies are individually very, very different. Um, you know, scientifically, cancer can be caused by a number of different factors, right? We know that certain viruses cause cancer, certain bacteria cause cancer, certain toxins cause cancer. So if cancer can be caused by, you know, 10 different things, 10 different breakdowns, then it would make sense that, you know, one person might need this urban supplement because their cancer you know, was caused from certain toxins, and another person might need other herbs and supplements. So you're right. It was all over the board. But there were general categories of herbs and supplements, and those there were three of them. The first was herbs and supplements that help you digest your food better, herbs and supplements that help you detoxify your body, and finally herbs and supplements that help boost your immune system. And Dr. Neiman, you're an expert in this coming from the world of Chinese medicine, of just knowing how tailored those herbs have to be per person, right? They, they certainly, you typically want to optimize things based on the individual case. Yeah. Not just in Chinese medicine, but I would hope in any type of medicine. Yeah, me too. Me too. You know, I think the, the Western medicine model is always hoping for one disease, one cure, right? But um, the healers that I talk to and certainly the radical remission survivors I talk to, they were doing similar things, but when you look at the individual level, they were doing it differently. So, for example, one person getting rid of yeast in their body, um, you know, fungus, was huge for their health. For another person, it was um, 
the toxins, heavy metals, clearing those out. And you need different herbs and supplements to deal with those, those two very different conditions. Well, a lot of the steps in, in radical remission are, uh, are more in the psychosocial and, and spiritual level. So let's, let's touch on some of them. You, you have some, some sections, one, um, embracing social support. And I know there's a lot of science now on longevity after a cancer diagnosis and um, how, how, much, how many or how few social connections a person has. Uh, how, how does somebody who's isolated... Uh, lonely um, go about addressing that, uh, th- especially if they've just gotten a, a diagnosis and they don't have the support in place? Well, I think, first of all, they should understand that um, working on building their social network could be as important as eating their leafy greens or taking their vitamin D. It, it really, scientifically, we know this, um, that feeling love and receiving love releases oxytocin in the brain, and oxytocin is such an incredible immune booster. You know, we're just starting to scratch the surface to understand the power of this amazing hormone. So you don't want to leave building up your social network to the end of your list. You want to put it right up there with taking, you know, your leafy greens and your herbs and supplements. But for someone who's feeling alone, um, there, are, there are things you can do to try to feel more supported during this challenge. Um, one of them would be to go to the American Cancer Society website and look for a local support group. Um, some people don't like to be in support groups because they don't want to talk about cancer all the time. And so what I would say to that is find a different type of group activity that you can do. Maybe it's a photography class. A lot of communities have group um, nature walks. Maybe you could start volunteering somewhere if you're feeling up for it, um, or just even getting a pet. Now, that might be a lot to take on, but the studies are really incredible, showing that um, feeling, receiving love and giving love to a pet is just as helpful to your immune system as um, having a partner or a spouse. And then you have a section called strong reasons for living as being uh, an important factor in all of these cases. And you talk about the difference between a fear of death and a desire to live. Can can you explain that difference to our listeners and, and how that relates to cancer survival? Absolutely. I think it's an important distinction that I, that I heard from the survivors. Um, it was subtle, but they kept saying it over and over again. They weren't necessarily afraid to die. They weren't saying, I don't want to die. They were saying, I want to live. And I think the difference there is that if you're, if you're only acting out of fear, which is normal, you're going to feel fear when you have cancer diagnosis, and I cover that very clearly in my book. We're not saying that you can't ever be afraid. But um, if you're operating out of fear most of the time, you're keeping your body in fight-or-flight mode, which means your immune system is not working very well. And so the people that I study, instead of focusing on, I don't want to die, I'm I'm afraid of dying, so I'm just going to do everything I can not to do that. They sort of turned it on its side, and they said, well, I really want to live. Let me focus on the reasons why I want to live. And that got them out of fear and into the joy of the things that were making them want to live, like their grandchildren or their, you know, their career, wanting to reach that milestone of, of that career goal. And so it really took them out of fear, and that helps your nervous system. 
But do you, do you have any concerns about or fears yourself about the misuse of, of the book Radical Remission? I was, I was thinking about your section following your intuition when making your medical choices. And I could imagine somebody reading these cases of miraculous cures who doesn't actually have terminal cancer. They have cancer and they're, they're reading these cases and they're like, my intuition tells me not to do the chemo and radiation when the chemo and radiation actually statistically would have been their best bet. So do you ever have that fear that some of these um, stories could be lifted out of context and, and used intuitively in a way that's going to jeopardize somebody's health? Well, definitely, which is why I always ask people to please read the book in its entirety <laughs> um, because I'm, I state very clearly in the, in the introduction that I'm not against Western medicine. Um, I am just pro studying people who heal from cancer. Um, and I think that until we have a cure for cancer, we need to study anyone and everyone who's healed from it. The other thing I say in my introduction is that these nine things are just hypotheses. They should not be copied yet. We have not done clinical trials on them to know if they really statistically can lengthen survival. But hopefully the book will start a discussion. Now, if someone you know, takes one of these steps and, and goes, you know, does, does what they're going to do with it. Obviously, I, I can't stop someone from doing that, but I, I do try to make it clear in my book that these are hypotheses that are meant to, to start a, a greater discussion, uh, but they're certainly not meant to replace, um, you know, the medical care that feels, that feels right to you. Sure, and a lot of them are, seem really compatible with pursuing your medical care at the same time. So it seems like a lot of upside and not a lot of down on some of these points. Exactly, exactly. So many of these, um, with, with the exception perhaps of um, taking herbs and supplements, that's the only one um, that you really need to always take those under the guidance of a health professional. Um, but the rest of them are all things that you can do no matter what avenue of healing that you're pursuing, whether it's chemo, radiation, surgery, or if those are no longer viable for you because you're home on hospice, then you can do these things as well. But yeah, these are nine things that you can do in a complementary way with whatever health um, health choices you make. And just a quick thing about the intuition, um, and I, ho I hope I made this clear in my chapter, the people who uh, I study did use their intuition, but they didn't always rely on it blindly. They just allowed it to factor into their decision-making. So just like you would ask your friends and family, what do you think I should do? You'd ask your doctor, what do you think I should do? The people that I study also ask their intuition, what is my intuition telling me to do? So it's not, it's not the end-all decision-maker, but it's just it has a place at the decision-making table, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's an important distinction, I think. Well, let's, let's end the program with just a brief touching on uh, looking at remission as multifactorial. I, 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 just like you mentioned, asked me earlier about Chinese medicine and the importance of individualizing a protocol for people, especially for, with a disease that has many different potential causes. The, the answer is inevitably seems to be a multifactorial answer that's not going to be a, a template applied to all people. That, that seems to be the, the message that I get from the radical remission survivors that I study. There is no one-size-fits-all answer. I mean, just the fact that there are nine top common threads and not three or two, you know, there's so many things these people are doing to get well, from the physical to the mental to the spiritual. Um, they're really, you know, the message that they're sending is is to, to really regain your health. You want to you hit it 
from as many angles as you can. And um, that's not, unfortunately, at the moment, we don't have one pill for cancer. And so it's going to be looking at your diet. It's also going to be working with a health, health professional to figure out what supplements you may or may not need. And it's also going to be making sure that you're keeping your immune system strong via your emotions so that you reduce stress, reduce fear, increase joy, increase love. All of those things are going to help your immune system as well. So it's it seems like a lot of work, and it is, but um, when you're not given any other options, um, maybe it's maybe it's worth tackling. Well, Dr. Turner, it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today, and hopefully some listeners today will check out the Radical Remission website. Wonderful. Yeah, I hope so. Thanks so much for having me. We're talking today with Dr. Kelly Turner, the author of Radical Remission, Surviving Cancer Against All Odds. If you missed part of today's program, later you'll be able to hear it at kboo.fm slash healthwatch or on iTunes. You could just type in healthwatch, one word, and find it in the podcast store. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine.